0: talking about it this is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML
1: hey it's Hamilton today I'm Curtis Thompson Scott's son spending 600 million dollars on an election for the same result that's like training for a hockey tournament where they don't keep the score except it's way more expensive and there's no t-shirt or even pizza Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Ken and Lisa are on the street. Will is in the board and here's Scott Thompson!
0: Listen to that kid. He sounds like the two in the newsroom. It's all about t-shirts and free pizza. Uh, Good afternoon, it is 309, it is 900 CHML, I'm Scott Thompson, it is Hamilton Today, Willerskin on the board, and of course a full newsroom and lots of action going on, which we'll uh, talk about through the course of the day. All right, uh, we got another jam-packed show today, let's talk about the poll question of the day. Uh, And yesterday's, uh, how do you feel about the election results? 53% good, which, you know, uh, I can understand that 53% of you uh, feel good about spending $600 million and ending up in the same place. Uh, I get that. Uh, And the poll question for today, will the new uh, uh, vaccine system, the new vaccine certificate system lead to confrontation? Uh, I'm guessing that this will be a high saying yes, a high amount saying yes, simply because people are anticipating confrontation. But I don't see how this is any more confrontational than asking for your ID uh, at the door, other than you're there to debate the issue, not the identification. Uh, What have you got so far with this, uh, Will?
2: We have 75.2% of people saying yes, this yeah. will lead to a rash of confrontations with customers. 248 saying no.
0: I don't think it will. I, I think cooler heads will be will prevail. And at the end of the day, the majority of the people are vaccinated. And, and you know, we were talking about this uh earlier on uh, in the week. 85% have got the first shot. 79% are fully vaccinated. So think about that. Uh, if 85% have got the first shot, chances are they're going to get the sh- second shot or why bother? So that leaves 15% of the population. Uh, 5% of the population probably can't get it for medical reasons. 5% of the population aren't going to get it for human rights issues, whether it's religion or whatever their, you know, decision is, but through the charter, they have that right. And the other 5% are anti-vaxxers, so you're never going to convince anyway. So, you know, anything we get above 85% is going to be phenomenal. And and again, I remember at the beginning of this pandemic, anything you got uh, over 60%, they thought was going to be uh, obviously a, a success story. So, uh, we're going to watch this as, uh, the week progresses, uh, and exactly what happens. My, my wife rolled out the new, uh, app or not the app cause that's not available for another month, but whatever you download now, cause she was going out uh, for lunch on a business thing, believe it or not. And, um, it was quite easy. She said it was, you know, like a two or three step program, uh, process. You need your health card, uh and and of course some id and other than that you're off and running so and then one month from now you'll get a a a digital dr code version of that same sort of thing so i I really can't see this uh continuing to be a massive issue as we move forward i think there's going to be some bugs and such uh but other than that uh you know i I think it will just die down like a a number of these other issues feel free to jump into the conversation we would love to hear from you send us a note scott thompson at 900 chml.com and the phone lines are all Always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. All right, lower turnout in this election. We'll talk about that coming up in just a sec. First, we've got Steve on the line. Steve, what are your thoughts uh, in all of this?
3: Well, low voter turnout is is a problem. Now, I I have a little bit of a proposal. It's right off the wall. I don't know if it's going to stick or not, but if you can determine you can have an open, a poll, or I'm sorry, a vote a week ahead of time, then why can't we um, make a vote that is almost like going to be guaranteed 100%, just like they do in the city of Hamilton, or any other city for that matter, where you have public and you have separate schools. You donate your money by your tax dollars to what school you want to see done. Now, saying that, Let's just go forward and say, let's do that with the federal government and say, I don't want to have liberals, so I'm going to give my tax dollars to the whatever brand it is that you want to buy.
0: Wow, that's an interesting concept, but I think at the end of the day, uh, simply the richest party would win, and the richest party would determine uh, the fate. I'm not sure that would work, but it's an interesting idea. Thanks for no, the call, you're, Steve. You're-
3: you're still only one vote by your taxes. It's not yep, about yep. the money. It's about the taxpayer.
0: Interesting concept. Thanks for the call, Steve. Much appreciated. Feel free. 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell. Let's bring in Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Polling, and is with us now. Daryl, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
4: Doing well. Hope you are, too.
0: Low voter turnout. Can this all be blamed on a global pandemic? Yep. Yeah.
4: Yeah and the reason is because we know that in the last two elections 2015 uh, turnout was 69% uh, very very high since 2000 we haven't had higher and in the last election which was nearly identical to this one it was 66 so we were at uh, 58 i think we're going to probably top out when we get all the votes counted somewhere around 59 which by the way is not the, the lowest we've had i mean 2008 was actually lower it was it was uh, just a little bit lower but uh, no this was the pandemic and we know that Scott because we asked people on survey on surveys uh, you know are you worried about going and voting in person and 25% of people said that they were and we actually saw that um uh they uh, um looked at other methods for getting out there to vote so advanced polling was up 18% we saw a huge increase in uh in uh, in mail in ballots so people were really trying to manage their safety in this situation so um i would expect that once we come out of this pandemic and we get back to things uh, uh looking more uh, more regular uh, whatever that's going to be whatever the new normal is going to be i think we're going to see voter participation snap back to where it was before
0: it almost seemed like the vote was suppressed. I mean, we had less uh, polling stations. I mean, Toronto was a perfect example of that. Uh, when you have a situation where there's less opportunity, whether it's a pandemic or the number of stations, what have you, who does that benefit? Does that benefit the incumbent or the challengers?
4: Uh, well, it's hard to say which is you know, who it actually benefits uh, Normally, it's the, when you look at voting on a demographic basis, it's older, older people who tend to vote more, and that tends to be for the conservatives and for the liberal party, the NDP. And uh, and uh Green Party um, tend to suffer as a, as a result of this. But, you know, it is interesting, even though we're having this conversation, there's no big conversation in the country about whether or not the election was fair or unfair. People have basically just accepted the results. And, you know, you take a look at the United States in the last election, in which their turnout was actually off the charts. It was, you know, around 70%. Um, even increased over the last election they did in 2016. And all the, uh, the difficulties they had about whether or not the election was fair there. In Canada, nobody's even raised that question.
0: Do you find that surprising, Daryl? Because, again, if, if, if there were less polling stations in the United States, they would be screaming that you were suppressing the vote. How could Elections Canada have given the okay for all of this without all of us knowing, you know, if we go through with this, here's what's going to happen. For example, in Toronto, instead of having 100 polling stations, we're going to have less than 20. I mean, that is an election with a suppressed vote, is it not? Yeah, I think
4: somebody somebody could make that argument. I mean, uh, because clearly what happened in this election is we went back to... Uh, a level of turnout that is really, really much lower than we saw in the the last two elections. So uh, it actually is somewhat surprising that nobody's raised this. We did ask people whether or not they thought the election could be fair, and there was a significant number of Canadians who thought there would be problems with fairness. But it's really interesting that there's no hullabaloo in the country about that.
0: Maybe it's because we ended up in the exact same place as which we started, Daryl. If someone else had had the winner, someone had got a majority, someone else a minority, then this might be a different conversation. Your thoughts?
4: Yeah, I think that that's probably true, but also I think it was pretty consistent with what, well, almost exactly consistent with what the polling was finding. So people had an expectation as to what the outcome was going to be. It did match the last outcome, so exactly as you said, there's no reason to believe that uh, there was any systematic monkeying around with the system to help any, uh, any of the political parties. But uh, we, we did see in our survey research that there was some concern about the potential for that. It doesn't seem to have been realized.
0: And kudos to the pollsters because you were all pretty close this time. It was pretty accurate, wasn't it?
4: Yeah, I know. I hear it all the time, you know. You guys always get it wrong. No, we mostly get it right. <laughs> <You> know, <there laughs> yeah, are, but the one are, time are,
0: you <laughs> the one time that's there's a slip up, you hear about that forever.
4: Oh, Schadenfreude in the polling business. Uh, they they go hand in hand
0: uh so what stands out for you in this pandemic election now that it's behind us what what do you see different you know when you look back at all the other elections that you've covered
4: well there's a a well-worn political consultant trope and media analyst trope about elections which is it doesn't matter how they're called people get over it really quickly and it doesn't factor into the results in the end not true (laughs) Mm. that's uh that that whatever trope that is it's it's uh it's clearly not, uh, not the case in this election. I mean, uh, 56% of Canadians told us at the start of the election they didn't want to be doing this. By the end of it, it was 70%. Uh, so it just got worse as we went through the election campaign. And I, I would say primarily is responsible for the prime minister not getting his majority. Um, it-, it was uh, a real, uh, um, it was an impossible thing for him to get passed um, in-, in the course of the election campaign
0: daryl Brecker, with us ceo of ipsos polling and bang on pretty much this time out and what we saw is what we got daryl as always thanks so much for the time be well thanks scott you too all right let's move on bring in michael tobe troy media syndicated columnist contributor to the washington times and former speech writer for stephen harper let's talk about election and what uh, holds uh, for the leaders moving forward michael thank you for the time i hope you're well
2: my pleasure hope you are too
0: Uh, Why aren't we as concerned about the vote being so low this time out? The fact that it was suppressed many, many, many more, uh, less, sorry, less voting stations. Why are we not concerned about that? Because we ended up in the same place?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. I think that if the numbers had been a little different or if the parties had, well, let's put it this way, if there had been a change in government or the parties had just had bigger tallies and totals, I think we would have been looking at that. The fact that under 60% of Canadians voted, what is it, it, I'm not seeing in front of it, is it it 58.59%? Yeah, yeah, something.
0: mm -hmm, Okay,
2: I mean, look, in a democracy, people have the right to vote or not to vote as long as they're registered to vote. The problem is that number is extremely low, and yes, it's more than half the country, but it's obviously not representative of everyone who was eligible to vote. And you can't force people to vote unless you want to go the route of Australia, where you had mandatory voting, where you would have to pay fines or serve jail time if you actually didn't go to vote. Uh, the problem here is that overall we have a country where obviously we have the freedom to vote or not to vote. Obviously a lot of people this time, the largest number of people in, in the Canadian history, opted not to vote. The numbers are very low, and it shows that unfortunately the it, it may sort of also explain why... <laughs> ultimately 2019 the federal election was incredibly similar or near carbon copy as i've called it to 2021
0: all right let's talk about the leaders moving forward and what is in store for them let's start with aaron o'toole i talked to him prior to the election i said didn't you know that the the win is in the center clearly i was wrong i'm sorry he took my advice what are your thoughts there and explain to the centrist what happened here
2: Well, I told you not to go there either.
0: (laughs) You did, Michael. You did say that. Yes, I do. You are right.
2: But but in fairness, you know, during the campaign, I wrote for three different publications, including the National Post, where some of your listeners may have seen me. Um, I did write that, you know, Erin O'Toole was certainly running a campaign that was fiscally conservative and moderately socially conservative. So it was more to the center, center right, if you'd like. And no, I don't think it necessarily was the the worst choice or the worst available option to them. Far from it. They tried to obviously do things that they felt would resonate with voters. The problem was that, and you and I have talked about this and I've talked about it with others and I'm sure you have with other guests, there just wasn't a prominent, powerful, particular issue that lasted for a long period of time. The news cycle sort of came and went with a few different things from mandatory vaccines, Guns, the environment, etc. And it just eventually moved back to each and every time frustration that Canadians had about going to an early election during COVID 19. But even then, we did a very Canadian thing. We were furious for a couple of weeks. We shrugged, we gave up, and we went on and we voted. So,
0: so is Aaron O'Toole in for the next run? Aaron O'Toole will most likely be in
2: for the next run. We, I mean, traditionally, party leaders had two kicks at the can or two chances to get into um, get into 24 Sussex or the cottage that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his family are currently living in. That's the way we've traditionally done it. It doesn't mean everybody does it that way. As we know, Andrew Scheer, the previous Conservative leader, only had one election campaign, and that was it. Stéphane Dion only had one election campaign. So Michael Ignatieff, as a matter of fact, only had one name as I'm thinking about it. So there are some more modern examples of that, but traditionally that is sort of the way we like to do it, and that's what we kind of sort of believe in. The problem here for Aaron O'Toole is that it looks like, at least based on what we heard at election night, it's good that he obviously wants to lead the party and stay on, but it seems like the direction that he wants to represent is kind of similar to what it is right now, when really what needs to happen is the party needs to have a serious rethink. Go back, re-examine what they did right and what they did wrong during this campaign, rejig their political compass to some extent, and try to figure out from other right-leaning parties who have taken obviously a small C conservative line, but a moderate line on both fiscal and social issues, how to balance it as best they can Mm. to attract more voters and more voters from across the country.
0: All right, really quickly, Jugmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau, what's the future hold for them?
2: Jugmeet Singh very simply has not grown his party at all. They are basically the same that they are in the same position they were when he started as leader. The fact is that he just has not increased them in terms of their popular vote, in terms of their seat count. He has just not been very effective overall. And he prefers to make TikTok videos and actually deal with serious policy. Now, Again, you can sort of say it's a bit of an oxymoron to call a socialist and say that a socialist or social Democrat (laughs) believes in serious policy. But when you look at previous leaders like Ed Broadbent, the late Jack Layton, Tom Mulcair, they at least took an interest in it and tried to discuss it to some degree. Jagmeet Singh, for the most part, seems like a very nice man, but Mr. Singh seems to be very vapid when it comes to politics and economics. So I think the NDP have to think about that. With Justin Trudeau, it's a good question. I mean, right now, he's obviously safe. You know, he spent, you know, he's, and on the one hand, liberals are going to be furious at him that he spent a record $610 million, according to Elections Canada, to hold an election that few Canadians wanted. And in the end, we ended up with a near-carbon copy of the previous parliament. Many huh. people will be angry at him that way. But on the other hand, he can, he's still in power. He will stay in for a period of time. They will probably stick with him to manage through the next, let's say, 12 to 18 months for sure for the minority government, or maybe a little bit beyond. And then, who knows, as some people are suspecting, maybe then he'll decide to step down just around the time that another election is about to be called or the minority parliament falls, and then that opens the door to people like Christia Freeland, yeah. the ministry, um, Mark Carney, and others. So for now, I think he's safe. Mr. O'Toole will have more of a battle to stay on, but... I think in the end, it would. I'd be surprised, certainly, if Mr. O'Toole did not lead the Conservatives into the next election, Scott. Mr. Trudeau, that's a good question.
0: Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. As always, Michael, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Tech analyst Carmi Levy is with us. Good afternoon, Carmi. Hope things are well. No, good
5: to be here, Scott. Thanks for having
0: me. Lots of tech stuff to talk today, whether it's uh, online voting or vaccine passports. Let's stop, uh, start with vaccine passports, obviously them coming into play this week. Uh, your thoughts on this? We all certainly know the debate on whether we need one and, and what has gotten us to this point. But will the hysteria die down here, uh, Carmi, now that we have these? Uh, what are the challenges moving forward?
5: Well, I think the hysteria will die down as soon as people realize, and the vast majority of people already do kind of get that, that this is just one of the things that we're going to need to have in our pocket, so to speak, to ensure that we can maintain a a balanced, safe, out-in-public life. Uh, and that if we want to return to some sense of normalcy, this is one of the things that we're going to have to do. We, You know, when we go into the Costco, we have a Costco card. We all know that that's part of the deal. This is exactly the same thing. If we want to go into certain places, we're just going to have to have that vaccine on us. It's really no different than anything else that we've ever carried in our wallet beforehand. Uh, and despite the objections of the vocal minority, I think the vast majority of us understand that this is a reasonable thing for us to be doing uh, in what really are very, you know, <laughs> uh, unreasonable, illogical times. So you, I, I think it will die down. It'll just become part of that so-called new normal, and we'll all just
0: move on. You bring up an interesting uh, analysis with a Costco card. We don't see people protesting outside of Costco because they can't get in without a card.
5: Yeah, exactly. You know, like like there are certain things that we that we do in society, and there are prerequisites for them. It's... It's not an inalienable right for me to walk into a restaurant as, as I wish. There are certain uh, steps that I have to go through. We have to wear clothes when we go out in public. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's right. No shoes. There will, there will be consequences. That's right. No, know, shoes, no, no shoes, shirt, no shirt, no, no service.
0: service. <laughs> there you go. And, no and, card.
5: And so that's right. And I think that's the same thing here. And, and I don't really quite understand the the, the degree of the aircraft. I think really it's a case of a very vocal minority making a lot of noise and the vast majority of us just kind of shrugging our shoulders and going, we just want to do what we need to do to get back to life. That's it. Uh, and so, you know, I'm just going to add this to the list of other public good things that I do. I drive the speed limit. I wear my uh, my seatbelt. I, You know, I get a license. Uh, so, you know, because and I go through certain steps and it costs me. And if I don't, there will be consequences. If I try driving without a license, I can expect to be fined uh... if i exceed the speed limit i can expect to be pulled over this really is no different society has and and the rules are designed to protect everyone around them so that if i choose to go out in public and adhere to the rules that i stand a reasonable chance of not getting uh... because someone else decided to not follow the rules that's really what this is all about And when we talk about it with our kids that's the message that we send to them it isn't about me
0: it's about we what about security or privacy (laughs)
5: yeah. Well, you know, any time you roll out any kind of technology, and you know, by this around this time next month, uh, Ontario will be expected to have an app that supports this. And already now, like I, I already loaded my QR codes, I downloaded my vaccine uh, mm-hmm. uh, confirmation from the from the government. That I was able to load it onto my iPhone. And so, technology already plays a plays a role here, and it'll play an even greater role once the the actual official app rolls out. And anytime there is a technology, there's always the potential for uh, a security related issue. There's always you know sort of that. You know, it's always in the back of our mind. Is it secure enough? And if you look at the, the basic architecture as they've explained it to us, we haven't seen the final version yet, but we've seen similar solutions in Quebec, which we're going to see similar ones in B.C. and other places. Uh, they're actually fairly security forward. They don't share uh, any more information than they absolutely need to. They only collect certain pieces of data, date of birth When you were vaccinated, details of that vaccination and your name. That's it. No other identifying information. Um, It is not shared with anyone else. It stays on the device. Uh, When you're scanned, uh, it only looks up what it needs to look up and then it deletes everything. Everything is fully encrypted from end to end. So, you know, there are. Uh, All sorts of security-related precautions that are built right into the architecture. Quebec, of course, had a bit of a boo-boo at one point. The the website that was used to download the QR codes wasn't as secure as it could be. That's been fixed. That's just the way it is. Security is never 100%, but it's as good as it needs to get. Uh, and, you know, basically, we're already engaged in a whole bunch of online activities that will expose us to significantly more risk than anything hmm. that this vaccine passport ever will. So,
0: All right. On that know, note, the
5: complaint about this is disingenuous. All
0: right. On that note, Carmi, I cannot believe here we are just uh, days after the election and we're talking about mail-in ballots. I cannot believe we're talking about this in 2021. Why are we not voting online, considering, as you've just mentioned, we're doing everything else online?
5: Yeah, I've been asking the same question, Scott. You know, it is 2021 and we should be moving in that direction. And, you know, ostensibly the the reason that it's never been implemented on any mass scale in Canada is because of security. But, you know, I look at my electronic life now and considering the fact that we've been largely in quarantine for the last year and a half, using remote services heavily for pretty much everything, uh, why I can do my online banking uh, remotely, but I can't vote remotely is beyond me. And so I think... You know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, this would have been a valid concern because the security tools and the maturity and the platforms and all that simply weren't in place to allow for secure online e voting. Uh, but they are in place now, and we've seen it uh, implemented su- successfully in other jurisdictions. There haven't been any mass breaches or mass security issues. Sure, there's some glitches along the way, but like any technology, that's just the deal. Uh, and, you know, we're always asking for our governments to do more with less. Everyone's complaining about the fact that this election cost us $600 million. Well, we want governments to use our money more effectively. What better way than to use our money more effectively than to switch away from old, inefficient, slow, and also not secure paper-based processes
0: and, uh, you know, and you that's, know
5: that's where the world is going. And a
0: six hundred million dollar election, and we didn't even have as many polling stations open. If there was ever a time, as we've seen with the pandemic, to jump with technology, this would have been the time to do it during a pandemic election.
5: Exactly, it struck me as really odd to walk into you know the, the advanced polling station near my house and you know sort of you know pick up a pencil and yeah and and. It, it just sort of seems so you know counter to the best practices we've been following for the last year and a half. Uh, and so I'd would, I would like to think that the government will look at this as a long lead opportunity. We'll start to move in that direction um, because I, I look at my kids and yeah. they of course are you know, you know relatively new voters uh, their entire cohort they were telling me about their friends who couldn't be bothered to wait in line, didn't yeah. have the time they were studying, they were working whatever. And so if you want to push uh, voter engagement up, if you want those voting percentages to go up, this is how you're going to do it. Because the, the, the voter of tomorrow isn't going to want to stand in line. The voter of tomorrow is going to want to be able to vote from their phone. And we have the technology to do it securely. And I don't know why we're not moving faster on it.
0: It is bizarre. Uh, tech analyst Carmi Levy has been with us talking about vaccine passports and online voting. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
6: Thanks, Scott. You as well.
0: Forget about his who says, scott has an entire vault filled with opinions this is hamilton today with scott thompson on 900 chml all right uh the new director of the uh emergency response center for the city of hamilton the city's emergency operations center to be exact is jason thorne took over from paul johnson uh gonna ch- uh, join him and talk about ontario's new vaccine passport program and where hamilton is now jason thanks for the time i hope you're doing well Hi, Scott, thanks for having me on. So obviously we remember talking to Paul Johnson at length during the early stages of uh, this pandemic. How are you adjusting into this role? <laughs>
6: it, P- Paul has left very big shoes to fill, I will say, <laughs> but um, I, I, I have been part of the Emergency Operations Center since day one. Um, there is quite a great team of city staff who are part of that, so uh, so the, the work and the responsibility doesn't rest on any one person's shoulders and uh, and the rest of that team is still there. So I got a lot of great support around me.
0: So obviously you've been through this, uh, a part of this since the, the very first uh, stages or waves or what have you. How has the situation changed at the Emergency operating uh, Operations Center uh, compared to the first wave, second wave, and now where we are? What is your role now?
6: So the, the Emergency Operations Centre primarily is focused on uh, the city's response in the city's own services and how we respond to the pandemic. So for example this new passport requirement uh, doesn't just apply to businesses, it applies to certain city services as well, most notably recreation centres. Uh, so we have to decide and, and plan out how the city will respond uh, whenever the regulations change, just as it, just as businesses do. And then of course we also coordinate the city's response in terms of uh, education, enforcement, implementation of regulations as they as they come along.
0: With the rollout of these vaccine certificates, uh, what sort of challenges are you expecting? I mean, we've heard that uh, that that some will rebel, but I, I'm thinking this won't be much different than when we asked everybody to mask. What are you expecting?
6: I think we're expecting something quite similar to each time there's been a significant change. So as you mentioned, the introduction of masks, that was a significant. Uh, change for people. There was a period of time of having to adjust and get used to it. Um, we had the same thing when we had physical distancing requirements that were put in place and the same thing when we had, uh, you know, certain definitions of essential businesses that could open and other businesses that couldn't. Um, this really has been the, the story of the pandemic for the past year and a half. Uh, and each time we have one of the significant changes in the rules and the regulations that are out there, we do spend a fair bit of time answering questions, doing education, raising awareness of what is required.
0: Uh, now, obviously, a new vaccine certificate program in Ontario. Many are concerned about enforcement. What would the city's role be in all of this?
6: So the city, city by-law enforcement is responsible for enforcing these new regulations, just as we have uh, been responsible for the past many months, enforcing things like masking requirements and making sure businesses are doing screening at the door and all those things that uh, most businesses are, are are getting used to. Um, So that does come to bylaw in terms of enforcing. Um, But really what we focus on in the early days, just as we have when other new regulations were introduced, is we do a lot of a focus on um, education, awareness. Um, Officers were out today in uh, meeting with businesses and and explaining what the rules are. They have a lot of questions, as you can imagine, um, and trying to help them uh, put in place all the right steps and processes so that they become compliant. So uh, that really is the focus right now
0: what are you hearing from establishments what are you hearing from uh, of what the concerns are of these establishments once this takes effect
6: there's a lot of questions about what uh, what does the vaccine verification look like so i know our, our offers can kind of show what it, what a printout looks like what the vaccine mm-hmm. receipt looks like what types of id are acceptable um the province has defined certain types of id that are acceptable to go along with the vaccine verification um and then questions as well around um, you know, we've had some about, does this mean we don't have to do some of the stuff we've already been doing? Now that we have the passport system in place, does it mean we don't have to do masking or does it mean mm. we don't have to do contact tracing? So uh, we're making sure we're explaining to business owners, you still have to do those uh, steps. Those regulations are still in place. Uh, these new passport requirements are in addition uh, to those.
0: Uh, I guess it was a few days ago we started to see modeling and that suggested that Hamilton would be into the peak of its fourth wave by about mid-October. How does the city's Emergency Operations Centre view that information?
6: So we get those updates through our public health group uh, regularly, and I would say a lot of uh, that modeling, not just in Hamilton, but across the province, uh, that's really underlying why the province felt it was was necessary at this point in time to take this step of having the passport requirement. Um, So that is certainly a a concern as we look at those uh, that fourth wave and the potential for those peaks. That's what we're trying to avoid. Um, Staving that off is what all of this is about. Uh, And that's part of the education as well, because, of course, you do get questions when you're talking to business owners or business patrons uh, why this is being done. And so that's part of the education that we do as well.
0: What advice do you have for those of us on both sides, whether it's a, a customer or uh, an establishment, what advice do you have for people trying to negotiate this uh, new system in the next little while?
6: Uh, well, I think one of the one of the main ones for the public is uh, you know be patient, be respectful. Um, the business owners are 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 learning just like everybody else is. Um, they may not have their systems perfectly in place and and they're still kind of learning their way through it. Um, be patient with the fact that it uh, it may take you a little bit more time to get into a business or we've been saying with our recreation centers uh, we will be screening people as they come into recreation centers so you might have to arrive a little bit early so plan what time you're getting there plan your drop-off times Um, in in rec centers for example we do have to screen each and every time you're coming in so if you're going back and forth multiple times throughout the day um, there is a requirement for a screening check each time, so um, so be patient with the staff who are trying to do this work. Um, it is really important work, and um, you know what we've heard from the from the first day of operation at least is uh, is the public has been very understanding of, uh, 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 of of what the businesses need to set up, um, and uh, and 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 so far at least we're having pretty good response rates.
0: Jason Thorne with us, the city's Emergency Operations Center director, talking about the new vaccine certificate program and how we make adjustments here in Hamilton. Jason, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks very much. I'm sure we will talk again. Yes, we will, for sure. Dr. Zane Chagla is with us, infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and the Department of Medicine with McMaster University. Good afternoon, doctor. How are you today? Hope all is I'm, well.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm well. How
0: are you? I'm doing good, thank you. Uh, let's give us a, a bit of an update locally. What's happening? We remember a week or two ago, Hamilton was a concern. It was a hot spot. Where is the city now in, you know, in regard to cases and, and getting those people vaccinated?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a lot of work. Um, you know, I think across the province, but in Hamilton specifically, there was a case growth we saw two to three weeks ago that we attributed to a lot of outbreaks. Uh, and much of that seems to have cooled off. Uh, and so we are seeing case rates that were very similar to earlier in the summertime. And I think that's being seen provincially as well. Um, there have been great efforts to do a lot of last mile vaccine campaigns to try to get some of those populations and some of the uh, worst FSAs uh, uh, vaccinated. It's certainly not at the level of the province, but certainly is coming up slowly. Uh, and you know, I, I think obviously we're we're at a bit of an unstable time to say what the future holds. As you know, as we know, kids are back at McMaster, kids are back at school, and so um, we're all kind of just. Hanging tight and watching to see what happens in that sense. But, you know, all in all, it is a little bit better than a couple of weeks ago. And, and you know, given that everything is still open and we've had more interfaces, this really is the power of vaccines that's being seen in real life. And, and you know, whatever we have in the population is working to, to keep our, our hospital safe.
0: What about hospital capacity? That's always been a concern. Uh, where is it now? Are We We remember hearing that some uh, elective surgeries had been canceled, canceled. Where, what's the capacity situation in the ICUs and in the hospitals in
1: Hamilton? Yeah, I mean, uh, clearly uh, hospital ICUs weren't great prior to COVID-19. And so, you know, we are still seeing cases. There's about 180 cases admitted all across Ontario and, uh, um, you know, several of those in, in our region. I will say, though, you know, one of the biggest pressures right now, particularly at the Hamilton General Hospital, is the provision of ECMO, which is a, a specific kind of life support that really can only be provided in a very small number of centers across the province. And so uh, uh, that ECMO is, is resource intensive. It often is the same machines that are used for things like cardiac surgery. Uh, and so there is a little bit of a pressure, particularly at the Hamilton General Hospital, for those patients who who need ECMO. Uh, it's a small number, but they require a huge amount of care, and uh, and again, we are a regional referral center, so that means that Hamilton will take those patients in if they are from a region that doesn't have it. So, you know, it, there there is still a lot of surgery that is still ongoing, and, and people are trying to keep the system as as operational as possible. But there have been a few cutbacks related to that, and and uh, as well as obviously. Um, you know, healthcare human resources, which are still tapped to the brink to, to deal with not only the catch up, but the burnout and everything else that's happened over the last 18 months.
0: Vaccine passports go into effect in Ontario today. We certainly know that debate and what has led us to where we are now. What's the challenge moving forward with vaccine passports? Well, or I should say, vaccine certificates. And will this hysteria around the passport and mandatory vaccine? I mean, we're up over 85 percent with the first dose. Is this going to subside? What are the challenges moving forward with this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, number one, there's there's obviously a lot of politicization of of what's happened over the last little while, and an election in the middle of it has has only kind of drawn lines even further, and so you know, unfortunately, I, I am certain we're going to hear about businesses that are going to be targeted, uh, that, uh, are going to have to face complaints and you're going to have to face, um, keeping people away from those businesses, uh, and the conflict sometimes from it. Uh, and, uh, and obviously again, it, it is in the context of trying to get more people vaccinated, and keep these settings safe, but clearly there is, um, Feelings on either side of the, of the debate that, that may show up. Um, you know, I, I think the long term goal of these is, is they are a band aid. They are a solution now at this kind of quasi point in the pandemic. Yes, we have 80% of our population back fully vaccinated, which is great. But that doesn't include a pediatric population, an under-12 population that isn't vaccinated. In fact, you know, when you add that up, we're, we're much less than that. So, you know, I, I think this is a tool we use while we're still getting immunity within the population. But as certainly as, as, as things improve, as we, you know, get, you know, some of our children vaccinated, as we're hearing much more news of that. You know, I, I think the, the goal then, just to protect the healthcare system, more than anything else will become much easier to tolerate and, and again you know we're seeing the, the rewards of it now that we're not seeing in, in other provinces uh with vaccines they are where they are, it's been great, but but there certainly is more work to be done to make sure they get into settings that, that don't overwhelm the healthcare system as a consequence of non-vaccination.
0: And Ontario is holding its own, so, so kudos to everyone uh, for participating mm-hmm. in that. Uh, as you mentioned, I think we're at about 85% with the first dose and we have to assume if you're getting the first, you might as well get the second one. Mm-hmm. Those are amazing high numbers mm-hmm. compared to what we were talking about at the beginning of the, of the first wave with maybe 60%. Once mm-hmm. the kids 5 to 11 11 are vaccinated. That's been approved in the states with Pfizer. We expect that to happen by the holidays, by Christmas here, and then into the new year. Once we get the 5 to 11-year-olds uh, vaccinated, uh, where are we? I, I don't want to say are we home-free, but man, that's got to really uh, change things when the whole population, 85%, is vaccinated. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, you, the, the reality of the situation is that the Delta variant and whatever comes down in the pathway we're all gonna see COVID-19 at one point or another. We're all gonna be exposed to COVID-19 at one point or another. Many of us will be infected at one point or another. And, and you know, as, as much as that seems doom and gloom with a vaccine in our system, it really turns this illness into a mild cold or mild symptoms. Um, and so, you know, I, I think as as things progress, as we get that younger group vaccinated, as many of that group that does not get vaccinated, unfortunately will, will get COVID-19 one way or another, we're going to see this disease becoming endemic, but again, for the vast majority of the population, becoming a disease that is really a home disease. It does not overwhelm healthcare systems. It doesn't close surgeries. It doesn't lead ICUs to the brink. And so, you know, I, I don't think obviously we're there yet, and places like Alberta try to embrace that as the, the role and have uh, been left behind. But I think, you know, as, as we get to those benchmarks, particularly with kids, particularly, you know, more of our adult population getting vaccinated, um, you know, I, I really do see us living with this virus a bit more and more and more by the day. And, and again, you know, relatively going to normal with the, the concept that our healthcare system isn't going to be overwhelmed.
0: Dr. Zane Chagla with us, infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Department of Medicine with McMaster University. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
1: No worries. All the best. Take
0: care. Just finished a federal election, uh, still in the uh, fourth wave of a global pandemic. Every so often you like to just blast off into space, find out what's going on and just take a little vacation from all of this. That is happening on Earth, which is when we bring in Professor Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy, York University. He is with us now, Paul. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott.
7: Always nice to be with you.
0: So it's interesting uh, this issue today about NASA splitting itself in two because up until well, I guess present back to the uh, origins of the space program and the Apollo and the space shuttle and what have you there is certain uh, I guess there's certainly been a uh, an objective in mind but now as you add different elements of this whether it's private investment or not and I guess in this space deep uh, in this situation deep space versus uh, low orbit stuff it, it's this is a good sign I guess in in the sense that it's branching out?
7: I think it is probably a good sign. I mean, it's been a bit of a sea change for NASA since 2008, and that's when they started the uh, the, the commercial contracts, the the working with groups like SpaceX to develop, uh, shall I say, the, the low-Earth orbit taxi, develop technology that they hadn't, that NASA was getting out of the business of. They'd only been dealing with space shuttles for such a long time. They hadn't looked much beyond that, and they turned to the private sector, and that has generated sort of you know, the, the space tourism, as you say, the, the dichotomy in NASA's approach to near-Earth and further away exploration.
0: So is this about deep space versus low orbit, meeting higher up versus lower, or is it about private investment versus the public sector?
7: I would argue it's probably both. Uh certainly NASA has made no secret of the fact that they wanted to utilize more of the, the the private entrepreneurial aspects of the space programs uh and to be able to, as I say, outsource, you know, buy services uh from SpaceX and other organizations. NASA, though, is wanting to look beyond low Earth orbit, if you will, been there, done that. They they want to be able to look to the moon. They want to be able to look to Mars. They want to be able to look to the exploration of our solar system. And to do that, they had to free up resources, and those resources were getting to low Earth orbit, and that's where SpaceX, Blue Origin, and all the other groups are coming in. So it's both. It's both commercial versus non-commercial as well as near versus far from Earth.
0: So, in other words, uh, NASA—we're into exploration, not perfecting what we've already done.
7: I think that's true. I think that's true. Uh, they've become very good at going far. I mean, you know, look, look what they've done on Mars, as far as the robotic exploration is concerned—it's fabulous. They've gone out to Pluto back in 2015. That was a marvelous mission. Their ability to mount those really exciting, scientifically rich missions, which, let's face it, SpaceX is never going to do. (laughs) There's no profit in that. So leaving SpaceX and the other organizations to deal with low Earth orbit where there is a dollar to be made, frees up the resources for NASA to do the really great stuff beyond
1: Earth orbit.
0: That was my next point. So uh, it, it allows them to go where there is money to be made, and rather than NASA working at that level, uh, they're freeing up funds to move forward. So I guess in the in my question in the end was, does this mean more for NASA and heading to Mars and all that sort of thing?
7: I, I think so. I think that's the right way to, to look at it. Uh, you know, NASA has been... Uh, starved of a goal for a long time and has been you know shall i say kept on a tight leash financially speaking you know to be able to go and explore with the technology that's needed is not cheap and going to low earth orbit is not cheap you can't do everything on on a buck on a dime so they had to find resources somewhere and uh, as i say you know creating the space taxi from a commercial source was one of the best ways of doing it
0: is getting away from this aspect of the industry adding more credibility to nasa we remember the backlash when the first three i believe uh rockets went up with people on board who were not trained uh, astronauts and and the blowback there less of that with this last one and as you were saying no doubt due to a huge uh uh benefit for charity which was great to see uh it, it, does that play a role in any of this like you know we don't want to be in the commercial game we want to be you know we're the scientists we're moving forward
7: tough question to answer i, I suspect the answer is that nasa's um credibility for the, the, the hard chores, shall I say, is still very high. Uh, but the last 30 years with the space shuttle going around and around in low Earth orbit, I think in many ways, while it, it was was an investment for NASA, it wasn't a particularly successful investment. And to be able to do different things was important to NASA. And, you know, ISS is important, but it wasn't pushing the goalpost much further. And so, as I said, you know for NASA to be able to outsource and be able to still support the ISS, but using the commercial players to do that, I think was actually a good move. I mean, they, they figured that out in the early 2000s, and I think it has paid dividends for them over the last dozen years.
0: We know what we've all seen in the last year or so with this industry and such. How will this change what we see moving forward, this split? How will What will this look like a year or two from now?
7: Well, we are certainly going to see an increasing number of uh, people in Earth orbit. Uh, Last week, there was a total of 14 people in orbit between ISS Inspiration4 and the Chinese space station. Uh, China is there to stay. The ISS is going to be there for quite a long time. With the advent of the space taxi and Dragon, you're going to see many more civilians, the amateur astronauts, in Earth orbit. You're going to see next month a Russian film crew in orbit on board the ISS. So you're going to see a lot more people venturing into space for both, uh, you know, personal as well as sort of semi-commercial reasons, not just the scientific endeavors which we've seen with ISS. So more people with a greater diversity of activities, that's on the calling card for the next few years.
0: Professor Paul Delaney with us, an expert in astronomy, York University. Uh, Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
7: My pleasure, Scott. Take care.
0: All right, uh, the next stage of space, NASA sort of splitting in two, well, is splitting in two. Uh, one more to venture out, uh, the great beyond, onto Mars and such. The other, uh, more the commercial aspect, which we've been seeing in the last uh, year or so. Fascinating as we enter into this next phase of what ex- uh, space exploration is all about. As always with Hamilton today, we leave it to you, the good listener, to step up on top of the CHML soapbox and have the last word. Are these vaccine cards gonna be able to suffice as seniors cards
2: too?